Hello and welcome to the Compassionate Leadership Interview. I'm Chris Whitehead and our guest today is Ben Allen, GP at Burley Health Centre, Sheffield Clinical Director for Primary Care, with a special interest in elderly medicine and service improvement. You can find Ben on Twitter at Ben Allen GP. Ben, the pressures on general practice are well documented and include chronic excessive workload and ageing demographic and staff shortages driven by early retirement and part-time working. Yet at Burley, you've put the national trend in patient and staff satisfaction. Over the past two years, when GP satisfaction nationally has crashed from 68% to 38%, at Burley you've managed to increase it. How did you achieve that? Yeah, well, it's a long story and I'll try and cut it as short as I can, really. Um, so, I, so I started as a, as a GP partner without without really an interest in improvement, really. And there were some great people, the, the staff, you know, there's some really great staff clinically. And it was clear that we just weren't managing patient expectations um, or, or, or demand, as you might call it. And there was a general sense that, that it was inevitable, that it was just not possible to do. And I think that is actually probably true, actually. But it's also true that there were lots of things that there were so many missed opportunities. I thought, you know, if you had the eyes to see it, there were missed opportunities everywhere. And so I thought, actually, no, there is a real opportunity here for trying to improve things. And um, one analogy perhaps might be if you've got a if you've got a a bike that's not being particularly maintained and the parts are all all um, great, but they're kind of there's some kind of bits that are coming out of alignment. And people just got used to a bike that kind of was just kind of clunking along a little bit. Partly it was that you weren't get going as fast as you knew you could, but it's also just the experience of riding a bike that where you know the gears don't change properly, the 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 brakes don't really work, there's a wobble. It's just like going to work in an environment where you can you can see and feel that, and you can real get a sense that, that it doesn't have to be this way. That was a real drive for me to think, okay, well, what is it that we have to do to get this team functioning as well as it could? Because you could just see there was so much potential in the organisation and in the people that were there. And then that was just this enormous puzzle that took me probably several years to unravel because I had no experience myself. And I think some of my initial things I tried to do, you know, having a chat with a particular, you know, there was like something would kick off that was, you know, some kind of political thing between staff you try and resolve it through a conversation or you try and create fairness somehow and and you started to realize that really you were just trying and playing with some of the symptoms of the cultural problems that were there that I think are in every organization and then so the real question became okay actually how do you really understand what the what drives the culture and how do you change culture and I didn't know that and that was when I kind of went into reading, um, going on YouTube, getting um, getting some great books and authors. So a real important um, influence, Patrick Lencioni, he's the, the the five dysfunctions of a team was one. Brené Brown's very good uh, on on building trust, particularly. Jim Collins did some really great books studying successful organisations and how they've evolved. And Simon Sinek got some great books on that have been and really great on um great great communicator on youtube as well 
And Nancy Klein really helped to think about the dynamics and, and how you listen and how you think well as a team. And so I would read all those books and every time I read one, I was like, oh yes, this, this is, this in here has got some of the solutions that, that we need. And then I read another one, had the same experience. And I, and I kept kind of seeing that there, and I'd see one book that was like, that kind of sounds a bit like that book. And this book sounds a bit like it's unpacked Well, those three books. Uh, so it's a little bit confusing as to know where to start. And actually the way that I kind of did it was I would write the themes down that they pulled out in some of the books and I started to kind of, put a bit of a, a bit of a framework together that helped me to make sense. And then I started to think of, okay, what's the order that we kind of go about some of these things. So I could talk about maybe the, the kind of, probably what the three main principles are, if that would be helpful. Yes, please yeah. do. Okay, so the three main principles, and I in some ways work through some of these in tandem really, but one is around uh, finding and nurturing potential in the team. Uh, one is uh, well number two was uh, the kind of team dynamics and number three was about being purpose and values driven so I'll talk a bit about um, finding and nurturing potential so I think traditionally the way that we look at professionals is very much from their professional capacity in terms of their role what they've learned in terms of their education that prepares them for the role but actually everybody has got so much more to them than just their professional role and their professional training and I think that it's the case that some people, they, they come to work, they, they're kind of given a task to do. And as long as they keep their head down, don't make mistakes, they can just stay in that role for a very long time. And we can miss really finding what, what are these person's gifts? What are they good at? What do they love? What are they great at? What do they want to improve at? And I think there's a question of how do we find that and unlock it? You can work in an organisation that kind of wants to bring out the best in staff, but actually you really need to have a clear plan about how you're going to make that happen. I think it's really important that everyone at the organisation has somebody who knows them, who cares about them, who is gifted at finding their potential and helping them to grow, takes a real interest in them. And, uh, and you need to have a real kind of relationship there. And I think it's really difficult if one person, like one manager is trying to do that for 20, 30 people. I don't think you can really do that. So it's then you then need kind of a network of, you know, that kind of line management model where it's it's somebody's job to help nurture a particular team and help to bring out the best in that team and in each individual and a way that that might be typically done might be things like appraisal so we did look at the appraisal but actually i think it's that kind of day-to-day noticing you know when they're struggling if there's anything that they could have done better at picking up on it uh, and just having that ongoing improvement relationship so that's about bringing out the best of the people in the organization i think a really important thing for us because i mean initially there was quite a there's quite quite a high turnover particularly in reception every organization a really important key is around recruitment and i think something that i've definitely learned is you you can't spend too long on recruitment because if you can imagine the difference between somebody who's really well suited for the for the job and someone who isn't, and you imagine how long they're there for, you can imagine the amount of time that someone who's a really great fit is going to bring to that organisation, and then how much time someone who isn't, how much time that's going to absorb. And when you when you can compare the two, the difference between having someone who's right and someone who isn't, you couldn't spend that long on recruitment. So um, so we really we really kind of um, we, we were looking at. The, the idea that, that skills can be taught uh, often, but the kind of person, the values they have and the fit with the organisation is something that is harder to teach. And so that we were very much looking at the kind of person. And then so once we'd had, we'd 
we'd kind of had a chance to practice with the receptionist and then when we needed a manager again we took a very in-depth process and we got an absolutely fantastic manager who has really driven quite a lot of change since he's arrived as well so the, t the bit on team dynamics is very much lifted from Patrick Lencioni. So it's trying to solve the problem of perhaps where you have an organisation where people don't feel safe to be able to say what they think. And so you don't get to hear the great ideas or the problems. And then when there's a problem that needs solving uh, and we start asking questions about people got what, what people's ideas or, or there's, an, there's some decision that people want to get an approval in, people don't particularly feel safe to, to, to say what they think. And then a decision gets made and most people actually didn't even want the decision, but they didn't say anything about it. And then when this when when this new thing arrives, people pretty annoyed about it. They potentially undermine it. And that would be uh, one of the kind of patrilentioni calls it the, the dysfunctions of a team. So I was going to talk about the first three. So that's around um, the first one's about building trust and psychological safety. Uh, the next bit's around having really good conflict and the next bit's around having commitment to a particular decision. Google did a massive study on what is it that, that helps define their successful teams and the biggest one was psychological safety and um, Patrick Lencioni calls it about building vulnerability-based trust. So psychological safety is how safe people feel to be able to disclose things that might feel vulnerable to say. So it might be that there are problems in the organisation, it might be that there's challenges that they have personally. How safe is it for people to speak up? Are they going to create problems for themselves if they speak up, or is this something that's going to be celebrated? And another another way of looking at it perhaps is around that di the diversity angle, because you know the one way of looking at diversity is it's really great. The more diverse a team, the more different views and opinions and perspectives you can get on a problem, and that's only going to add to the richness of of the solution. But as well as diversity, you need the psychological safety because what you then need is to be able to get all those views on the table and all those views to be to be heard. That often isn't there, and that and if it isn't there, it needs building. I'm going to give you a few examples of things. So, so one is around celebrating speaking up. So, if people do make a brave step, to celebrate that, point it out, uh, to model it, so to to model vulnerability. So, for the leaders to be able to talk about the some of the mistakes, some of the mistakes that they've made, or some of the challenges of the that the organisation has. I think facilitation can play a really important part. So initially, it might be there's just not enough safety, and, and you have to. The only way to hear things is to speak to individuals. But you can facilitate in such a way where you maybe have uh, small groups, because answering questions in a full group of twenty people might feel too vulnerable. But actually, if people can speak in a group of two or three and then reply back on behalf of the group, no one actually knows who gave, gave that particular opinion, and it starts to break down some of the barriers. And if I just maybe give you my favourite example of uh, my favourite meeting actually ever, which was my manager's idea. He asked us to bring in three objects that are meaningful to us and that we would share with the group, uh, with the team, what we'd brought and why. And so at lunchtime, we all sat around in a big group of 20, maybe 20, maybe about 25 people. And we went round and we yeah, and we did exactly that. And it was absolutely incredible. You got to learn about who people are, what they care about. You get to learn about their stories. Uh, you get to learn about their vulnerabilities, their loss, their celebration in life. There was laughter, there was tears. It was just a really beautiful uh, experience really to be in. Normally the way that we think about work is when tasks have been done. And so most people, when they look at that meeting, it will just feel like, oh, that was a nice experience. It was bonding. I got to know people better. But actually, if you see psychological safety and trust as being absolutely foundational to a team to perform, then that was one of the, the most important bits of work 
that we've done as an organisation to be able to have that many people in a room being vulnerable and building that psychological safety and that trust even more. So if there's someone who you find difficult in the organisation, for example, when you see a little bit of that, that a bit more depth to who they are and, and what their challenges are, it shifts the relationship and it makes you feel differently about that person. And so, yeah, that was a, my favourite example of a, of a meeting that I think really makes a difference. Once you've got that level of trust, hopefully people are going to start being more honest about what their problems are, what their problems are as per- personally, but also with the organi- as the organisation. And you, know, you, you hopefully move from a position where people are trying to, to be right as an individual to, as an organisation, how do we get it right together? And then if you're able to do that, then you're more likely to be committed to whatever decision gets made. Because if you're in a, in a room and you can hear all the different perspectives being being given and you can start to see that your perspective is in the minority, you can hear other people's perspectives, you can see how it's unfolding, you can see that you've been listened to, you've been taken seriously, your views have been taken into account and you can kind of see the direction it's going. And then if you, if you really see that process, you can much more easily live with the decision that gets made at the end of it. And you don't have that scenario of where you just don't say anything and then you try and undermine it. I think the idea is really that if people are really honest, then they're more likely to buy into the solution. An example of that is we we changed to using a predominantly online tool for gathering information from patients you know, when they wanted a consultation. And we, we were definitely not nowhere near coping with demand at the time. And there were various different options. So I spent quite a lot of time drawing out the options, how the how the flow would work through the organisation if each time patient had a, had a problem they wanted some help with. And we as an organisation, we looked at that evidence together, we discussed it, we wrestled with it. And then we even kind of had a bit of a show of hands about which option do we like, which option do we want to go with here. And there was a definite leaning towards a particular tool that we're now using. And I think that process of everyone feeling able to speak and to be able to have a say meant that when this change came and it was a really significant one that we were all bought into it together and actually no one has tried to undermine it you know since we since we've gone so I think that's the kind of the process that I think has really helped us to be able to make good decisions and stick with them so the third one is around what's the organization's purpose this is the one I've done a bit less on so far but I think you could ask the question to yourself what is the purpose of your organization what is it trying to achieve what does good what does good look like for your organization and then you could also ask the question what would other people say at your organization what would their answer be and you could even ask that question what what do the people that you're trying to serve so patients in the, in the nhs what would they say the purpose of the organization is would that match what you think or what does the government think is the purpose it's not something that we talk about very often actually but we're very driven by what matters to us and we want and we are we're willing to spend effort and time on making things that we care about happen but there's a problem if there isn't actually there's there's no actual consensus about what that direction is and we can all often go to work with our own particular purpose and sometimes those those purposes can conflict and potentially in the absence of some grander purpose that focuses us often we could just be left with Purposes like just getting through the day, leaving on time, trying to get some targets met that you don't even really care that much about. And I think that that is often a quite common experience of of going to work. So I think that there's potentially a lot of power behind an organisation and facilitating a conversation with the team 
or potentially with the people that you're serving and say what what are we here for what do we want to see happen and what does good look like and have that real honest conversation and see if there's a way of really defining a particular direction that people feel brought into and then you can ask the question how are we doing how are we actually doing right now at that and have again have a really honest assessment of seeing where you're at and if there are areas where actually you're not doing as well as you'd like to be doing then you can start asking the question well how do we how do we make progress in this area and then that's potentially something that you can then revisit over time it's something that can help shape decisions when you're recruiting when you're doing appraisal when you're changing something like the waiting room you can go back to your go back to your purpose and then it can then become the engine uh, behind lots of the decisions that get made do you believe that the nhs in general and gp practice in particular needs a new kind of leadership okay and answer that so they've got two answers to this question then so one is, yes, I think that the, the type of leadership that we need is evolving. But I also think that some of these principles are neglected and not understood and not valued uh, as important work. So I'll, talk, so I'll talk about the first one first. So uh, so this is at least the way I'm framing it. I think in the, in the past, it's possible that the organisations that we had were quite top-down, hierarchical organisations that managed to get a lot of work done by getting a group of people who would just kind of do what they're told. And then, you know, as long as you've got a, the, the brain of the organisation at the top kind of sending information down, you just needed people to just to, to follow instructions. And it's almost like a factory. And I think that that, that that can work in some environments, particularly where they're not particularly complex environments. Maybe it's like a factory or something where you do just need to almost be like a machine to, to make stuff happen. The health service is not, not even close to being like that. Yet, I think that we've inherited a, a leadership structure that can look a little bit like that. And so I wonder if the kind of leadership that was celebrated in the past where actually real kind of strength and domination was a real value in leadership. We're so far beyond that now, but it might be that as that as a culture, we still look to the same kinds of leaders that we've done for hundreds, if not thousands of years, where we're looking for often kind of dominant males, people who've got confidence, people who've got charisma, people who've got certainty. And actually that might have served us really well in, in previous kind of organisations, but now, I think the thing that really helps in complex organisations are people who bring out the best in everybody. I think someone who really cares about developing people, empathy, listening, a love of diversity, uh, humility, very, very important. They're the leadership characteristics which are more likely to enable an organisation to thrive. The problem is that people who, who are good at those things often don't look like leaders to us. And they don't feel like leaders themselves. So, so the, the, the job really is, is to, for us to thoughtfully redefine what great leadership is, what, what are the leadership traits that we need. And then there's the really serious job of actually how, how do we start to recognise those people and start to say to them, you might not feel like a leader, but actually you're somebody who we really need to be at the heart of this organisation. So I think that in a way, after the answer to your question, I think that the type of leader that we need in this complex environment is it has changed. So the other bit to the question is, do we have leaders who value some of the principles that I've been discussing earlier? I think that we've often got an overvalue of 
tasks, just getting jobs done, and an undervalue of culture and especially about teams. How do you make teams thrive, function? How do you help people to love their work so that they actually want to come to work, so they bring out the best in themselves? What are the underlying dynamics that you need to attend to? So going back to the analogy at the beginning, how do you men- how do you value and men- maintaining the bike? And it's not just about getting better bike parts because they can, they can help and they can give the illusion of solving the problem, but actually it's that valuing of, of the dynamics that make a team successful. How did your improvement programme impact on the way that meetings were conducted in the practice? My memory may be a little bit clouded, but my memory from the beginning was we had partners meetings where lots of the decisions would be made, so the partners with the manager, and we'd have staff meetings that mostly were about giving out information. So thinking about what's the best thing to do when you've gone to the effort of getting everyone together. So in general, giving out information can be done by email or WhatsApp. So they were the two favorite ways that people wanted to get information. And to have a meeting, to be able to pass on information because people aren't reading their emails or the WhatsApp, I think it's a really poor use of time. If you've gone to the effort of getting everyone in the room together, you really want to do something that you couldn't do any other way. So for me, that's about engagement and it's about building the team. So it might be that you've got a question that you want solving or you're, you're wanting to get ideas about something or you want to get a consensus about a particular direction that you're moving in. And so that becomes something that you're able to then use the whole team to help shape. So that there's also a new kind of meeting that didn't used to happen. So with the partners meeting, I noticed that in big organisations, you often have the heads of department in a room together making decisions. So you might have the head of finance, head of manufacturing, the marketing, and they will represent the people who in their teams, but also they, between them, have got a really good vision of what's going on in the organisation. But in, a, in, a, in at least in our GP partnership, and it's very common, I think, is that the partners tend to all be GPs, uh, and you might have a manager along there. So actually, when you're making some of the, the, the most difficult decisions that are about in a strategic direction of the organisation, you've actually got all people from one department plus a manager who's trying to trying to represent the whole all the other departments, both in terms of what's happening and in terms of uh, what what problems are going on. So I just felt to me that wasn't a particularly good way to to run an organisation. And at the time, we we didn't have a consistent leadership within the other teams. So this kind of joined with the thing I was talking about earlier around having somebody whose job it is to know their team and to nurture their team but they're also somebody who can represent their team in a different meeting that wasn't currently happening and so what we've been able to do now is we've got we've got the the lead nurse we've got a lead receptionist and we have somebody from the admin team plus the manager plus me and together between us we know all the problems going on in the organization we've really got a much better ability to be able to deal with quite a lot of the operational problems day to day and we've been able to take a lot of the decisions away from the partners meeting and I think often answering them more quickly often getting better answers to questions and then freed up the partners meeting to do the things that only need to happen there. What are your future plans for the practice? Is there anything left to do now? So I think there's lots of things to do still. <laughs> One great thing is now that, I'm, uh, that I, I really do feel that it's a self-improving place now. Every few weeks, 
There'll be something that someone's doing, some process that's been improved, some patient who's been listened to. An organisation can never stop improving because life moves on and systems denigrate and there's always things that we can do differently to improve. What we, what we do as a practice though isn't completely down to me because I'm only one partner of five and every t- all these improvements have financial costs, they have personal cost, and so this is something that we go on a journey to, to uh, on a journey with together. I can give you a few examples of the kind of things that I would love to see happen in, in my practice or other practices. So one that's a little bit difficult to describe exactly, but it's around blurring the boundaries between the practice team and the public, of having much more dialogue, much more engagement, maybe even um, where we kind of where we listen we engage with each other we maybe even problem solve together potentially even having volunteers in the practice i like the idea of there being greater transparency in the organization in terms of how we make decisions even finances i've talked a bit about the purpose and values we've done our exercise on that but i think it's um now that we're into the uh, kind of into spring i think we've got an opportunity to try and think about okay you know how how are we doing at these things and how can we make improvements in the direction that we want to be going in i think personal development i think is definitely something that we can continue to do with the staff and i think there are people who are kind of starting in lead roles and i really like them to be able to start leading some of the meetings and starting to shape the direction themselves so there are a few examples of some of the things that i could i could see there being an improvement in so what are you doing, apart from this podcast, to disseminate information on the thinking that's gone on at Burley? I haven't done lots, to be honest. I think probably the main the main way, for sure, has been Twitter. I kind of stumbled across Twitter by accident, really, and just started posting things on there that we were doing or things I was challenged by. And I've been really amazed by the number of connections that I've made, the kind of ideas that I've gathered from Twitter, the response I've had from the Twitter community to some of the things I've been doing. And so that's been a place when I've shared quite readily. I have attempted to write up the the journey uh, of, five, of the last five years at Burley. And I think that the the College of GPs wanted me to, to do like a three-part series. I haven't, just haven't had the time, <laughs> but, I, but I suppose I should. And, and I guess maybe part of it is the uncertainty about how much value the journey that I've been on, what's that got to offer for other people. The answers that i found are not often, the, they're not always the answers to the questions that most people are asking. What do you believe the NHS needs to do to improve to meet the challenges faced by primary care in the long run? Can service improvement be the whole story or will the role of the GP need to fundamentally change? It's a really hard question. General practice is definitely struggling. I think the main reason is that the workload has has gone up uh, and the staff numbers have been going down. I think there's a real risk of changing things out of desperation to make something different because you know that you want to make things better but there's a risk that changing things could make things worse. It's going to take time to recruit new GPs. Bringing in extra roles from other places definitely has a role, but that's also got its challenges. We have a real problem of retention. So the question is, how do you sustain the people who are currently in primary care whilst they train up the people that they're going to need in the workforce? And that's a very challenging question. I think potentially there are two potential ways I might look at things that may help. So one is around... Is, is around culture and team dynamics within the practice, but also within the whole scope of the health service from the government right down to patients uh, with the health service in between. I think that, I mean, let's talk about the second example for now. Is you've got, it seems that you've got a government that's responding to 
uh, often criticism in the media and they kind of dictate, this is the way I see it, they seem to dictate to NHS England what they want to see happen. And then NHS England then pass down things that often the people doing the job just throw their hands up and say, "What? <laughs> this is this is this is hopeless. <laughs> this is not gonna. This is not doable. Or it's gonna potentially make things worse." And there seems very little public dialogue with the patients at any point of this. But what's lost in it all is that I think deep down we all want the same things, and I think there is underneath some kind of shared purpose here. But purpose never even seems to get a mention. <laughs> And I, and I feel like that could be part of the process of the government getting together with the staff, getting together with patients, even getting together with the media and actually squaring and saying, what, what's the NHS here to achieve? What is, it, what, what is it not here to achieve? And try and agree some form of shared purpose, shared direction. Because it feels like there's potential for us to be on the same team, whereas at the moment it often feels like there's four teams warring with each other and it doesn't feel necessary. And then the other bit to it is, if you think about an individual practice or team, it's unlikely that there's going to be much in the way of significant resources coming into your practice in terms of pe- in terms of finances, in terms of people, the workloads like to continue to go up. So what is the thing where we have some control over it? And for me, and this is what gives me hope even in the next year, is that there is unreleased potential in our staff and in our organisations. And if we can do the things that help get the culture right, we can we, we can create places where it is a joy to work, where we bring out the best in our staff, they can do more, they want to do more, and it makes it a much more satisfying place to work. One of my favourite analogies recently, it's a rather odd analogy, but it was queuing up for an, uh, for an Italian restaurant my family were we, were we were waiting for a seat to come clear we were waiting outside and there was this uncertainty about whether or not we were going to get seated whether they'd forgotten us and then one, once I'd been seated and we, we got our food I started kind of I was just kind of observing and the staff were busy they were they were walking quickly they weren't flustered they were they seemed very calm and they were being very very effective and efficient and I think they were working with a deep sense that they couldn't be doing this any more effectively than they were. Now, it'd be possible for them to be looking at the queue, thinking, oh no, there's still 10 people queuing up. And that would be really, you know, and the, when people complained or something, they might feel really anxious about these 10 people. That, are, that But I think that they were, they couldn't have been working any more effectively. Now, in a GP surgery, it's often the case that we're not meeting demand. But it's also the case that we're not in that flow that I described in that pizza place now it's much I, I presume it's probably quite a lot more easy to to make a pizza place function well and it's not so complex it is very very complex but there are days when I'm when I'm in my job now where I just look around and I just see the way that we're functioning like this organism of you know messages popping up of the right meetings happening people making new stuff happen solving problems people knocking on doors information flowing around the organization and and there's something about the fact that and it's not always like this because I think there's still opportunities but you think that we couldn't we couldn't be doing this any better i think i can live with myself that even as a partner who's responsible for the organization there's only so hard you can work, but there's only so well you can work. And I think it, I think that it, we're still on that journey of working. To, and I'm sure that I think there's a lot further we can go still. But I think it is possible to be not meeting the demand, but also feeling a sense actually, 
you don't get peace from just working hard because we were working just as hard before, but it was working hard and knowing there was also so many opportunities for improvement. And when you're kind of quite far on that journey of of improvement, you're working hard and you're working in an organisation that is working. I think you can have a real sense of peace and joy as a team. So aside from Burley, Ben, how's your Sheffield role going? Yeah, so I've got a, the technical name for it. I'm a clinical director for primary care in Sheffield. But the way that I see it is that my I've got a role in trying to help general practice to thrive on two days a week, <laughs> which is definitely a challenge. So I'm still on the journey, really, of really getting clarity about what's the best way of doing that. In my practice role, I'm one of the partners. I'm kind of in charge. I'm able to make decisions and make stuff happen. Whereas in my leadership role, I don't I don't own any of these practices. So the way that you bring about improvements is very different. And so one of the ways has been looking at uh, bottom up, really kind of bottom up change of getting people together from practices. Who are the people who've got energy, ideas, who want to see um, improvements happen? And if we can get those people together, potentially you've got a a room full of people with energy and you can together start to engage and build solutions that people can take back to their practices and start to have some tools to be able to chain, make some shifts in the practices that they're in. So that's one of the things. Uh, And then there there are other things that we could do at a Sheffield level. So I think that building relationships between primary and secondary care Having better communications with the public, I think, is really important. I think the reception teams are really key. And so we've started to develop a reception training scheme that might be able to give a more formal training to receptionists uh, that could then be ready to be recruited by, by GP surgeries. So that's some of the things that I've been trying to do in my Sheffield role. OK, then what's next for Ben Allen? So the, a bit of a journey I've gone on recently... I'm not sure where it's going, but I read a, a fantastic book called Reinventing Organisations by Frederick Laloux. And it talks about how, as a culture, psychologically, we've evolved over time. And the organisations that we create often represent the way that we might be thinking at that particular time. And as we evolve, we and our organisations are able to deal with even greater complexity. So the NHS was developed at a time when bureaucracy, that kind of top-down model, really gave advantages to what was previously there before. It was a way of like an engine factory of being able to like make loads of stuff happen in a really organised way. You could then see how the private sector came along later and that has got its problems but there's some of the advantages might be around um are they able to innovate quickly organizations that are not particularly strong often just get out competed and there's there is a kind of self-improvement mechanism built in built into it as well as the issues we're around around being kind of profit driven as well and then you might say that over time people didn't just want to be a cog in a machine like in the bureaucracy they didn't just want to be in an organization that was just making money they wanted to do something with their lives that was really purposeful they wanted to do something meaningful you know this is a big part of their life they want to be achieving something that feels worthwhile and so you start to have organizations that were more purpose-driven and that were trying to achieve something that people said I, I, I want to put my life energy into that and then it appears that there's a, another kind of organisation that's evolving and it's sometimes, each of these stages have often got a colour 
ascribed to them. So teal being the the um, the, the stage that seems to be evolving at the moment, and that is around these kind of three principles of of organisations being very purpose driven, of bringing your whole self to work. So that's a lot of what I've talked about around that vulnerability around. Uh, it's not just about your qualifications, it's about all the gifts and all the strengths that you've got, um, but also all your honesty and all and the kind of communication that's, that's um, much more honest. And the third thing is around um, having self-organizing teams where you've often got a small team of people who have got far more autonomy than, than, we, than we would be comfortable with in terms of their ability to recruit, to be able to use resources, to make decisions. And they often have a coach that can help them to, to think things through. But it's a way of them potentially releasing the creative capacity and energy of all the people in the organization. So this is something I've been learning about and then I think about general practice and the problems that it's in and I think about what's the model that GP surgery is in so I think there's a bit of all of those different stages and I can see what I've been trying to do at my organisation is actually to, is to help us to move in that direction but I can't help wondering what would it be like if you really could design a GP surgery from scratch really and really think okay what Let's take the things that CSRE has got to do in terms of its contract, in terms of CQC, and have a dialogue with the staff and with the patients and co-design a, a purpose and think very, very differently about how you organise it and how you run and the transparency and the engagement and using some of these teal principles. I think that in there are some ingredients that could make general practice look unrecognisable in terms of the experience to work, in terms of the experience of the patient uh, and also the, uh, the ability to be effective at what we're trying to achieve. So I'm curious about what that could look like and how I might be able to be a part of something like that happening. Finally, some questions that I ask all my guests. What does your self-care regime look like? So I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer this probably slightly differently to maybe how some people answer it. I, I love I love my work uh, and I and I love leadership and I love thinking about this stuff and uh, if I don't even get tired of it really but it balance is really important to me I think the actual hours that I do are probably quite close to full time if not a little bit more I think the big issue for me is about being present when I'm not at work and not thinking about work not being on Twitter and being with my family and taking interest in in, in what's going on in their lives and for me that's the most important thing is that discipline of being able to step outside of the things that I'm really interested in that my brain's often just in the background like a little computer program working through problems that isn't I don't want that to be all I'm about and so it's that it's that question of how to have the discipline of, of, of um, being present when when I'm not at work part, part of my story that I've not talked about is that I really didn't like being a doctor for the first for the first eight years and, and I went part-time and actually part of that was me, me and my wife had a lot of time together I had a lot of time with my children we had a lot of time at home we, we have moved house in the meantime and we've, we've got a home that, that we love and we spend a lot of time at home we actually homeschool and I've got a really great community of friends through my church and at work. So I feel like I'm kind of surrounded by people who I care about and who care for me in a home that I really love being in. And so life outside of work is is a lovely space for me. And I think that that is that whilst also being present, I think are the, the two things that probably kind of sustains me. Is there a person or experience that has inspired you on your journey? Yeah, so when I was at med- when I was uh, doing my GP training, I had a trainer called um, Alan Shirley. It was at a time when I probably wasn't particularly enjoying being a GP trainee, but also I think that I'm someone who's quite creative 
and would yeah often ask questions and I think I, I could probably end up f- kind of fitting the category of a bit of a troublemaker a bit of a rebel and I didn't really want I didn't really uh, I wasn't trying to be um, and I think there's probably people who maybe associate with that and there was something about Alan he was just able to accept and compliment me for how I uh, for how I was and at a time when I could have you know, felt like I'd pretty close to jacking it in to be honest it, 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 it gave me a sense that, that it was alright <laughs> that I was okay um, and in terms of uh, probably the authors I mentioned before, but you know particularly um, Patrick, Patrick Lencioni, I think, is um, was a real inspiration. And finally, what advice would you give your twenty-year-old self? Yes, I think the way to answer that question is I went to a funeral of a, of a friend and something that really resonated strongly throughout the whole the whole funeral was that, that people just loved that she was uh, her unguarded self. She was just so clearly not trying to pretend to be anything that she wasn't. And it, and it, was, such, it was interesting, really, given how lots of people live with the fear of being different and they actually are trying to not look different. But actually, what's, what's really true is that we, we want people to be themselves. We love people who are different, who've got quirks about them and actually I think we we celebrate difference more than we we want to allow ourselves to be different so I think that would probably be the thing I think just to 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 be yourself and to accept who you are and to do things with your life that you love. Ben thanks ever so much for sharing your thoughts on work and life and thanks for listening to the Compassionate Leadership interview. You can order Compassionate Leadership the book on Amazon And if you'd like to support the show financially, you can find me at patreon.com forward slash Chris Whitehead. Email me about the show, chris at danflask-consulting.com. This episode was recorded on location and the music was brought to you by 96 back on CPU Records. <laughs>